Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome. My guest today is Ben McCaw, Senior Portfolio Manager within the Capital Markets Research Team at MLC Asset Management. Ben, welcome. Thanks, Alex. It's uh, great to join you today. So I thought you know we would kick off this conversation and we're going to focus on fixed interest, but you can't look at fixed interest without thinking about the, the macro outlook and, and what is the philosophy or the inflation, deflation particularly, before you look at fixed interest. So can you give us a bit of a backdrop? Uh, you're right. I mean, the macro backdrop is really important for all assets, but it's particularly important for fixed interest. I think that if you really want to understand today's macro backdrop, you've got to you've got to go right back essentially to, to the Greenspan days, where this notion of just continually meeting economic problems with lower and lower interest rates and solving issues in the both in the in the in the real economy and financial economy with lower interest rates has sort of begged a a decade or two now of a, is a chronic buildup of, of debt in the entire system, and that's debt across the public sectors, debt across the, the private sectors, which has uh, really manifested itself because while while we've solved the a debt problem with more debt, the, the, the underlying reason here has been because the productivity of debt that's been deployed into the economy has not been high. It's been it's been lower than the cost of debt, and so debt's continued to build up. That's a long-run story. I think everyone's very familiar with it. It came very acute leading into the the 08 crisis, which saw a real change in in the way monetary policy handles the or at least a major change the way most people perceive you know, monetary policy to be to be handling the modulation of of the monetary framework or monetary conditions in any country, particularly in the US, with uh, what Bernanke did as chair of the the Federal Reserve. That type of debt that exists across the world has had a, a major impact on demand. And so that you sort of see here there's a quite a, a negative or a vicious cycle of you know, more debt creating the environment where demand gets repressed even further. Couple that with globalization as there's been a you know, very large emergence of production power out of the, the eastern side of the world and a big trade deficits between the east and, and the west, all at the same time where some eastern countries, particularly China, have been exporting capital back into the consuming west just through maintenance exchange rates. The disinflationary characteristics of the past two decades now have been reinforced by large levels of debt, globalisation, automation and demographics as well sitting beside that. So the, the the underlying or the overlying macro backdrop is one of high debt, low inflation and, and ever declining rates. And are you comfortable that, that this is going to sort of then be a status quo that will sort of stay in this almost deflationary style environment? Or do you expect that this inflation will pick up given the amount of stimulus that we've seen now from the fiscal side? Yeah, look, that, that is a very important point because it, I guess it's obvious, but it's still worth stating that the that the further this type of regime goes, the the greater the the uh, the risk of, a, of an eventual inflation outbreak. That's more likely to occur when demand becomes strong. Obviously, inflation at its core, even though it's a complicated process, is just a 
a feedback from supply demand balance for goods and services across the, the markets and across the world. But the problem is, and this is, I think, where, where lots of people become unstuck, is that when you start to try and think about imbalances, and what we're talking about here is a, yeah, it's a, very, it's a profound imbalance, it's a very important imbalance, is that it's difficult to get any feedback on when imbalances may correct themselves. And so I think a lot of people tend to look at the global economy as if it should be in a state of sort of equilibrium or a state of a sort of steady state equilibrium type situation. But I think the reality is that history sort of proves this. The global macroeconomy and most 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 important aspects of the global macroeconomy exist in unstable equilibrium where, where, where factors can move away from where they should be based on sort of longer run views about balance across uh, different aspects of the, of the global economy. And so it's, it's, I think it's always very important to abstract yourself away from history where you might think sort of fundamentally things should lie and try and understand the reasons that things are the way they are because you know, usually there are some fairly strong forces that are pushing the environment towards where it is. And for the most part, those forces dominate the outcomes across both the macro world and the financial world for a relatively long period of time, i.e. they do, you know, you get these sort of periods of stable partial equilibriums, I guess it's probably the best way to call them, particularly in things that we're talking about that influence that influence inflation and growth and, and pricing in asset markets. So I think one of the things that investors spend a lot of time talking about, which I think it's a fascinating concept, you know, what anchor should you use? Because somewhat arbitrarily, I guess, where your anchor sits with respect to a particular aspect of the global economy that you're trying to understand will determine your interpretation of the current status quo, right? So if you're anchoring yourself back to history, then deviations from history are going to cause you to come unstuck. Whereas if you're anchoring yourself too much on some unsustainable aspects of the current environment, then you risk becoming uh, unstuck by a change in the regime. So trying to balance out you know, how you anchor yourself and interpret what's going on in the, in the global macroeconomy, I think is a challenge that investors really need to spend a lot of time thinking about because ultimately it's going to have a, a large impact on positioning and, and, and performance through time. It's amazing, you know, when you when you start to reflect on on history and you look at past prices, you look at the importance of interest rates, you look at the importance of valuations. You've got this fundamental philosophy that you've been taught through university, through various education programs around sort of how economics and markets should work. But then at the same time, we almost feel disconnected that this equilibrium that we're potentially sitting in. Has been manipulated because central banks, I guess, playing with the market forces. Is that a fair statement? It depends, Alex. I mean, I, again, we're talking about what is a very complicated uh, framework, and I think humans tend to try and simplify things too much sometimes, usually at the expense of uh, information and information you need to make a good decision. And so when you think critically about this notion that central banks are sort of manipulating, in inverted commas, interest rates, yield curves, et cetera, et cetera, just pause for a thought and think, well, actually, the monetary framework itself is not a natural, uh, it's, it's not a natural system. It's not, it itself is an artificial system. And so I think it's, it's difficult to try and characterise one part of central bank monetary policy as artificial and another part of central bank monetary policy as, say, natural. And by that, I mean, I think it's not uncommon for people to be very comfortable, for investors and, and economists to be very comfortable to characterise an overnight cash rate or a policy rate as natural. 
but then criticise other forms of implementation of monetary policy like yield curve control or other, you know, other aspects of quantitative easing as unnatural or manipulation. But the more consistent way to think about it is to acknowledge that the price of money in an economy is really never set purely by the market across all interest rates. You know, your current sort of monetary framework, you'll almost typically always have the overnight cash rate set artificially uh, by a policy decision. Uh, and then maybe the market's determining longer term interest rates under the, the system that most people were used to, say, pre-2008. But really, the control of interest rates or the, the implementation of interest rate policy through longer term interest rates by central banks engaging in quantitative easing is really just extension of the monetary framework that exists when we just set out the cash rate. It's just that instead of setting just the cash rate, they're having control over longer term borrowing costs as well, which when you characterise it that way, it's just an extension of what is really an artificial framework anyway. The other sort of flip side to that is that people feel, well, hold on a second. Yeah, I understand that that this is where the central banks have been playing in setting an overnight cash rate and, and so forth. But then hold on, we've lost potentially price discovery because there's this constant, the central bank supporting asset prices. So we never actually get this clearance. And therefore, we then have problems in terms of the allocation of capital. And then how do we actually understand what are the real signals as asset allocator that you should look for? Because we've seen this disconnect between what sort of seems to be happening in the real economy versus what's happening in the financial economy or financial markets. Yeah, and that's, that's a good point. And so, the, the, I mean, there's a couple of points to make. I think you're absolutely right. that, And it, it sort of makes sense that the more that central banks remove price discovery from the markets, then the greater the chance that, that we're going to get an unintended consequence out of the poor, poorer, I guess, allocation of capital into the economy. I think the first thing to focus on is that if when central bankers obviously look at the current setup across both the real economy and the, the financial economy, and particularly if they focus on the on the real economy, which is a very important feedback loop for central bankers. I think what they'd be looking for and what other people should be looking for, obviously, is for feedback from the real economy to indicate the impact of monetary policy has gotten to the point where inflation is starting to rise. I think inflation is probably the, the yeah, it is obviously the, the most important feedback point out of the real economy when it comes to trying to assess whether or not the current monetary settings are right or wrong. Now, the, the problem is that it's despite surveys, despite market pricing of, of break-even inflations and, 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 um, and, and other means of market pricing of inflation, there's still a such a high degree of contemporaneous in the pricing and the feedback that flows through markets with respect to inflation. So what you tend to see is that the current pricing of inflation tends to reflect the experience of inflation or the recent experience of inflation and potentially the outlook for, for strong drivers of inflation like the oil price. When you characterise it that way, it, central banks are obviously looking at the system now as, as if the current monetary setting is not particularly inappropriate because the feedback that's coming out of the real economy in particular is is not suggesting that monetary conditions are, are too loose and maybe the feedback is that, you know, that monetary conditions are too tight. Um, but obviously coming out of the financial economy, I think this is this is what you were getting at earlier on, is that the, the signal that coming out of the financial economy might be slightly different insofar as risk premium have become depressed now because of the you know, activity of central banks across rates that they that they haven't traditionally controlled to the extent that they can control today. And so all the way from shorter term bonds through to much more risky assets like equities, there's been a, 
an extension of valuations uh, to, to the point where expected returns from most asset classes is compressed to not very much at all. You know, real rates are really challenged at the moment. So there is a slightly different bit of feedback coming out of the real economy and the financial economy, but I suspect that particularly with what's going on in the global economy right now you know, and, and the impact that COVID-19's had on demand, that the feedback from the real economy will continue to push central banks into believing that the current monetary setting is, is not loose enough, I would suspect. So I guess how do you think about the broader influence by central banks on sort of people's now ability to utilise fixed interest as a hedge and also as its ability to generate income? They're both very interesting. The second one's probably easier to talk to first, and that is that the basis for any return will obviously be set by the by the current or dictated by the current monetary setting. And so repression of uh, or low rate settings uh, across the, the yield curve obviously make it a real challenge to generate income um, because real rates now are are very low and negative in in some cases. And well, the flip side of that is that asset prices uh, are high. And so the interesting thing about this particular phenomenon that's going on in asset markets at the moment is that asset owners just are continuing to reap reward. It's fresh capital that suffers the most because capital that's already in place as rates have fallen, although the you know, the income level on, on the assets is starting to decline in time as a function of their yield of their you know, at, at current prices. The yield with respect to the price at which someone initially deployed capital into the economy is held, held up and investors that have owned assets have just really benefited from the compression of the cost of capital across all asset classes, but it's the fresh capital that's continued or the capital that's invested every day from, from now on that is really challenged by the by the compression in rates and the, the much lower yields on offer. And that obviously has an impact for the attractiveness of any asset class. But but at the end of the day, if this is happening across the the spectrum of all assets, then it, it and and there are no other alternatives where you can find a more appealing risk reward trade-off for a particular level of income, then it, the, the consequence is that you know, an entire portfolio's yield will just decrease through time as long as this continues to, to progress. The benefit though, Alex, is that if rates continue to fall, which they may and they may not, it's hard to say, then at least capital that's going into the economy today will be rewarded through an, you know, an appreciation in prices, rates continue to fall. The nasty scenario is, of course, that we just hit the lowest, lowest of low in rates and from this point on, it's either rates going sideways, in which case the income levels on these securities is going to remain the same, which is very low, or even worse, is they say that that, uh, that rates rise, in which case you're going to get capital losses. Uh, and that's, that, I mean, that, that's a situation that investors obviously like to avoid. But from a diversification point of view, still, at, wait, 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 I agree with what you said. Yeah, there's... Um, as rates go lower, then um, asset prices, bond prices go higher, and the you know, the potential for bond prices to continue to rise in the event that economic growth is challenged obviously becomes less. I would point out, however, though, that it's really hard, and it's it's really hard to draw a line in the sand on this and say that bonds are getting or bond prices are getting to the point where diversification potential is almost obliterated because what I've seen over the past decade now is just a continual ratchet down in people's expectation for yields. So maybe back in 2011 or so, I heard people say that the US 10-year rate won't go below 3%. 
And then, I mean, now I think it'd find, you'd be challenging to find somebody who think that the US 10-year yield is going to go above 3% from the bottom. And, and, you know, Japan's a good example too, and there are other markets as well where yield levels that maybe seemed incomprehensible at some point in time were eventually realised. And so even though is a truism that as rates go lower, the probability, the probability of them going even lower is lower, um, I think that it is not right to characterise bonds as being completely devoid of diversification potential at this point in time. I mean, take, take the 30-year Treasury, for instance. The 30-year Treasury in the March sell-off uh, this year in response to the COVID-19 pandemic was approximately half of what it offered back in 2008, which and it was still, yeah, still quite a handsome return. I think I was sort of it dropped from delivering approximately, say, 30% uh, into a portfolio to about, 17 or something in that in that level. So it's still, you can see, even though even though rates have fallen so far since 2008, the long duration bonds are still offering some degree of relatively healthy diversification uh, into portfolios. But of course, and I think this is where we'll probably go with the conversation soon. Um, in order to maintain that level of reactivity, investors are forced to take more risk by in the fixed income space anyway, by pushing out their duration or increasing their credit exposure. The piece that's really interesting, and you, and you described it a couple of times, which is around sort of these very low rates. And at very low rates, you have very high convexity. So it takes you know almost no yeah. change in interest rates to have some significant losses, particularly on a on a 10-year yeah. or a 30-year bond. That's one of the biggest challenges for asset owners where, yes, you want to have bonds as part of the portfolio, but at the same time, it won't take much in terms mm. of a change when you look at, look at sort of 50, 60 basis points on a 10-year, if it moves 20 or 30 basis points, you have some very significant capital moves. So you know, you're, not Correct, yeah. you're not balancing the income slash capital loss potential off there. And I think that's one of the reasons why you're having people reassess what fixed interest is mm. and traditional fixed interest. And then, as you say, the people are now looking at higher credit risk, you know, alternatives because they provide mm. a higher income source. You know, so how should people maybe reevaluate that whole asset class? Yeah, I mean, that, that's true. And so the way I, I think the correct way to think of that is that the if you think of the kind of total return from a bond, the cost of diversification through a bond now is a lot higher because, you know, as you quite rightly pointed out, these low levels of yield, small, small changes in yield to the top side can be pretty pretty nasty from a capital point of view. And so whereas what I'm trying to say is a bond is a positive carry asset that offers diversification to a portfolio, well, it might actually be now that bonds from a from an expected return point of view, from a total expected return point of view, particularly long duration government bonds, aren't necessarily sort of quote unquote positive carry anymore, just because if you think about them from a, an expected return point of view, given the, the losses that you could experience if rates rise, then perhaps the cost of that diversification now, because like I said earlier on, there's still there. I think there is still diversification benefit from bonds, but maybe now it's switched to be. It's, it, it's a more it's a more expensive form of diversification. Whether it switches from being a you know an asset where it's got a positive expected return to an asset that's got a negative expected return is somewhat arbitrary. But I think it's true to say that the cost of of, of diversification through duration now is is higher than it was in the past, and and it may in fact be uh, be negative. That then raises the question, do investors need to think a little bit outside of, of fixed interest and maybe look to real assets you know, that provide this income and, mm. and capital growth opportunity? 
Yeah, I think so. And I mean, the first, I mean, the easiest type of real asset, I guess, to go to would be an inflation linked bond. And then we talked earlier about the part of the consequence of the current monetary setting is maybe a, a heightened chance of inflation at some point in time. I don't think that point in time is terribly close. And I, you know, that just given the, the debt dynamics that we spent a little bit of time talking about earlier on, and uh, it's very likely that central banks will maintain a, a situation where real rates are low. And if inflation is low, that means nominal rates can remain low, but obviously inflation and central banks are going to lose a degree of freedom on the nominal rate side if inflation starts to rise. But that, of course, doesn't mean that real rates are going to rise. In fact, probably a stronger argument that real rates have got further to fall. And so the real bonds with real real duration is something that can help in the first instance. I think that's the most simplistic, that's the most direct link. Real assets too, the, the, but the factors that drive them are, are really much the same, I think, whether it's infrastructure or um, or property. The direction of real rates rather than nominal rates uh, is, is going to be very important for whether or not you know, those assets continue to perform or, or stall. And particularly one of the things to call out between, say, real assets and, and a real bond is that, for the most part anyway, most most real assets come with a quite a heavy amount of gearing inside. And so the rate relationship is not as straightforward as it might be for a real bond. The other part that I wanted to sort of get your thoughts on is the role of cash, particularly in a portfolio. A number of super funds have questioned the role of cash and, and sort of feel that it's just this wasting opportunity. Yeah. How do you guys think about it as an ability to provide diversification and also opportunistically providing a source of funds for these market downturns as well? Yeah, uh, cash is uh, cash has. I think cash has different roles at different points in time when. Real cash rates are, are higher, then I, I think that it's probably a slightly stronger argument for, for holding cash. But the problem is that, from my point of view, I know that cash through the cycle, and, and particularly at this point in time, is a very expensive asset to hold from a longer-term point of view. I see a lot of people holding cash and talking about the optionality value of cash. You know, you can you hold cash as opposed to holding a, an asset that's overpriced. And then when the asset is overpriced, it corrects in price and deploy cash into the asset and hence there's some optionality value there. But I think that's a seductive story. It's very difficult to play out in real life. I, you know, it's very difficult to time markets like we are talking about earlier on. You can perceive a misvaluation. You can perceive some sort of imbalance, but getting some heads up on, on when those when what you perceive as a problem is corrects is is difficult and uncertain and so i think what you need to do with respect to cash in a portfolio is to think a little bit more sort of holistically about how to get cash into a portfolio because cash doesn't have to be cash and that's that, that I think that's a very important important point to note so you can optionality is, is, is a way of generating cash so people talk about the optionality embedded in cash well another way to look at it is that you can get to cash from optionality in a way that 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 alleviates you from needing to be get timing spot on when it comes to some sort of imbalance uh, correcting itself. So, for instance, you can generate contingent cash in a portfolio quite easily, particularly an equity portfolio, by buying a put and funding that by selling a call. Now, what the, the situation there is, you've, you've essentially created contingent cash in a portfolio. Why is that? Well, it's because if the market falls away quickly down below your put strike, then that part of your portfolio becomes cash. You're, sort of, you know, you're exposed to the underlying asset, but then you've got a negative, say, delta one exposure through the put. 
or when markets rally up towards the call uh, the call that you sold towards the strike of the call that you sold anyway then you take into cash again as you know you're long the asset but then you've got a delta one sold call against that which means you know essentially got a cash exposure now the, the reason i think that's a superior strategy most of the time to just holding plain cash in a portfolio is that it at least enables you to experience the market return through what I believe would be a reasonable bounds of return. So, you know, if you think just sort of conceptually about that strategy being somewhere between a, a 90 put and a, and a 110 call, then at least you get to experience the market outcome through the most expected type of market outcome. It's just in the, in the extreme market outcomes that you become, you know, you're forced into cash just by the way the market's moved. And I think from the way I think and, and the way our team thinks, that has a lower opportunity cost on the portfolio through time. And it, it really most importantly, when it does have an opportunity cost, it's come at the benefit of avoiding you having to make a timing decision on when things are going to correct. It's an interesting strategy. I don't know how many other funds take it in that sort of approach. I think some of them are using liquid alts as, as one alternative to sort of have money on the side or some other sort of market neutral funds that they mm. see as that ability to be a, a surrogate cash option. You know, they're legitimate strategies. It's just I think they're very hard to find reliable. Reliable alpha strategies are few and far between and I'm just not very good at picking up on them, I don't think. Uh, yeah, they, they exist. They definitely exist, but, but they're rare and they're very hard to find. Is it fair to say that then your portfolio is pretty clean cut in terms of a traditional SAA in its approach? Not really. We... Um, our funds, particularly the absolute return funds, are quite active and it, it, I mean, it depends on what you mean by traditional. We don't have much in the way by way of illiquid assets. We have an exposure to, to private equity, but the asset allocations are very flexible. The way we implement does use derivatives quite a bit. That's, you know, not, very, that's not particularly plain vanilla. We obviously try to, to keep cash low given what we were, we were just talking about. Now, that obviously depends on the, on the strategy that the more income-focused, risk-averse strategies are uh, do obviously hold cash, but but the, but the longer-term, more aggressive strategies that are trying to re, you know, eke as much return out of markets as they possibly can tend to hold little cash. But no, so they're not particularly um, sort of plain vanilla in the way that, the way they're implemented, but they may be perceived as plain vanilla when it comes to the, their, their lack of, not, not lack of, but their low exposure to things like liquid alts and um, unlisted uh, assets across property and, and infrastructure spectrum. That was sort of the backdrop that I was thinking of yeah. in terms of there's a lot of different ways to implement and get exposure from factors, but it seems as though the way that the portfolio is constructed is much more direct investments in, in fixed interest rather than sort of isolating factors as such and, and making allocations. Is that fair to say? Oh, that is very fair, yes. Yeah, that's it, something that I don't believe the team we, – we, it, 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 we think it's a very difficult way to, uh, to get exposure to, to risk premium and, and, and earn money through time. The other diversifier that we haven't talked about is around gold. What you're thinking about gold is, as part of a portfolio and as part of a, a defensive mm. um, asset. We think of gold as a bit of an enigma. Um, most people, when we start talking about gold, want to talk about how you value gold. I think valuing gold is extremely difficult to do and very uncertain. And again, coming back to anchors, the, your, I think your view on gold is, is, is going to come back to your anchor that uh, your price anchor for gold, which for different people will be a different number and somewhat arbitrary to a certain extent. If you think, if you can sort of say one thing certain about gold, it said it's got a very strong relationship to real rates, getting back to what we were talking about earlier on. 
And so as a diversifier to real rate exposure, gold makes a lot of sense. It makes more sense when the price is lower, obviously, than it does when the price is higher. But you know, given the conversation we had earlier about bonds, it's, there's nothing unique about high prices these days. So, so gold as a complementing sort of or build-out exposure to real rates, gold makes a lot of sense. You know, so does the yen as well. The yen can sit along gold quite, quite well as a, as a real rate exposure. The problem, though, is, again, how you get there. And so for us, we we had a um, quite a heavy gold exposure in our absolute return fund built up over the last couple of years. But just given the run-up in the gold price in February, it made sense to switch that to optionality sort of in, the, in light of the conversation that we just had. You know, the gold price being higher, still want topside exposure to gold uh, just in, in, in case real rates continue to drop. But at the same time, the downside from the sort of 1600 1700 price is pretty scary. So because of that, we were happy to use some of the PL that we'd built up over the last 18 months or two years or so with our gold exposure to fund some optionality um, over the gold holdings because even though you know, the real rate, maybe inflation reactivity that gold tends to carry, I mean, the inflation, the inflation reactivity comes through the real rate exposure, I, worth pointing that out, but, but that trade-off between alleviating out or removing some of the downside from, from the exposure and um, maintaining the upside exposure for us was, was a, a summicable trade-off at this point in time. But I think, it, it, yeah, getting back to your original question, it does, gold that should sit alongside other forms of, of, of real of real assets and other other means to access uh, to, to expose portfolios to real interest rates all right that's been a fantastic conversation thank you very much for your time today Ben no worries Alex uh, pleasure to talk to you thank you for joining us all views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.